Uh, so this is my last uh, sermon in what's called Ordinary Time, and it's going to be my last full sermon, for this year anyway, unpacking uh, you know, what's going on in our world today and how we kind of, I think, navigate that as followers of Jesus. Uh, and so if you came here this morning to escape uh, reality, I'm sorry. Uh, we're here to actually be really honest about our reality and how our faith in, in following the way of Jesus and the Scriptures intersect with that, which is super helpful. And the church has always done that under pressure if it's walked in wisdom. It's gone like, how do we navigate through this? Uh, so I'm going to be talking to all of the stuff going on once more this morning. Yay! Um, but also, I, I need to say up front that a huge chunk of this talk is just me regurgitating one of my friends called Dr. Joseph McCauley, who pastors a church up in Tauranga. I was there last, uh, two weeks ago, and I watched his sermon from the week before because I thought I'd better know what they're talking about, and, uh, and it was brilliant. So literally, all the gold today, full credit to Joseph. He probably stole it from someone else, so I'm not sure, um, but whatever, we're in a lovely little uh, pyramid scheme of goodness here, so we're just going to roll with that. So a big chunk of this is, is just full credit to him. Is that all good? Everyone clear on that? Okay, cool. Um, but there's a, there's a percentage of Harvey in there. It'll, it'll grow probably as the sermon goes on. Um, the key text, oh, I haven't brought it up. I don't, no, I don't think I have. The key text, my, church, my sermon this morning, which is literally the sermon that, title that Joseph gave, was a church at, at the crossroads. The key text for me, as I've said a number of times for this moment, I believe, is Deuteronomy 8, 2 to 3. It says this, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So it's interesting that we note uh, in that passage that there's a sense where uh, God leads them into the wilderness, and what does he do? He humbles them. Man, hallelujah, oh my gosh, if you're allowing God to work on you at the moment, it's humbling. And what does he do? In the, and again, God led them into the wilderness. It wasn't the enemy, it, wasn't, it was like God led them into this place to test what was in their hearts. There's the spiritual liquefaction going on left, right, and center. Stuff that's in our hearts is bubbling to the surface. And it's quite confronting. I can only speak personally. I'm like, ooh, okay, that's interesting. I didn't realize that was in there. I thought I was quite a good Christian. Turns out I've got some work to do. Uh, and there's this fresh discovery of the deep satisfaction of a life orientated and feeding on the Word of God. He's like, I, can't, I, test, I wanted to cause you to hunger and friends, every person I know is hungry right now for something. Like, oh, this is tough. And it's like for some people it's causing just a fresh hunger for God and that's the right response in a time that's pressured and difficult. A wilderness time is a, a time where, uh, so you know, lots of biblical uh, examples, uh, uh, sort of illustrations or metaphors or words used to describe this wilderness, exile, the desert, storm, a crisis. It's a place of disruption, intrusion and dilemma. There's a loss of structure, a loss of reliability and predictability that offers stability and a sense of place and of coherence in life. It's like, man, it's disorientating. And you are here. Good luck. All right. So church, that's finished now, and uh, we'll call it a no. We're going to try and... It's stressful, right? Is anyone else, anyone else just over it yet? It's like, this sucks. 
Come on, church. Come on, somebody's got to agree with that statement. This sucks. It's lame. It's, it's disorientating. And, uh, and the depressing thing is, we're like friggin' only starting really part, we're partway through the journey of this whole thing. And anyone else is like, ugh. Like, oh man, we're like, you know, we're up, uh, maybe, I don't know how far, we're just starting what many other countries went through a year ago. Oh man, and it's like, and then we've got an election cycle in 2023. That's going to be nice and relaxed, you know. Oh, cool, you know. And here's why it's so, str- like, because. Uh, N.T. Wright said, you know, a lot of what's going on right now is the, is the privileged modern Western world catching up with the reality of the rest of the world. Because we're used to like, having to sit with all of this pressure. But I can tell you firsthand from living in the slums of Uruguay, this feeling is kind of like every day for a lot of people. Stress around job and, and just like the vulnerability of life and how quickly things can be turned upside down. Like this is just Tuesday in India what the Western world is going through in lots of ways in terms of stress and stuff. I, I believe, well, you can disagree, we're all having fun disagreeing with each other these days. Might as well, I'm, I'm, seriously, I was like, oh, I might just go there and keep it. So anyway, so here's, here's why it's so tricky though. Here's why it's so friggin' tricky is that you can't have all of these things right now. You can't have all of them. You have to choose uh, which values take precedent, which should be a priority. Now, I know this is triggering for everyone because the problem is families can't agree on what the, what the, you know, how this should, where we should, you know. If I ask you to throw a dart at the one you think's most important right now, darts will land all over the show. Families can't agree with this. Churches can't agree with this. Nations can't agree. The world can, very difficult right now for everyone to be like, hmm, this is exactly what we should do, right? That's why it's so friggin' stressful. All of these values are important, but it's tough to work out at the moment. What's the most important? And every time I think I've worked it all out, someone very, very smart comes along from a different quadrant and goes, yeah, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh, true, she should have thought about that. It's really, oh, okay. It's, it's very hard to have a non-disruptive, non-dilemma-inducing, non-intrusive global pandemic, it turns out. Amen. It turns out it's really hard to not be friggin' stressed through this whole thing. It's super frustrating. We're in a wilderness time as a culture, as a world, as a church, and it's tough. It's stressful. And so whenever you find yourself in the wilderness place, you find yourself looking for a solution. How do we get out of here? Or we could say it another way, where does our salvation come from? How do we get out of this? It's interesting, there's a parallel moment for the nation of Israel in the wilderness. Uh, where the, and this is what Deuteronomy 8 is speaking to. A time where the trust structures of their heart were revealed. It was a time where they were humbled and it was a time where they became very hungry for God. And we read about it in Acts chapter 7. Now this, we're jumping in partway through Stephen's sermon before he gets martyred. Okay? So that's the context. Ends really well for Stephen. Uh, so again, super encouraging times this morning. Acts 7, he, it's interesting. Bear with me. We're going to tie some stuff up together in a second. Partway through the sermon, Stephen starts talking about what happened for the Israelite people uh, when Moses was leading them. The Lord said to him, to Moses, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. 
This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people, speaking about Jesus. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Rephan, and the idols you have made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. Thank you, Grant. Uh, uh, tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness, and it had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Now everyone's like, well, how the heck does that tie into what you're talking about, Harvey? So here's what happens for Israelite. They're in the wilderness, they're seriously over it. There's this great passage in Numbers 11 verse 5, oh, we just long for the cucumbers of Egypt, they say. It's like, oh, we just want to go back there. And they're under this pressure, they're under this stress, they're over it because of just how this pressure is revealing things in their hearts. And so they're like, what, like, where can we go? So they've got these options where it's like, man, we go back to Egypt, uh, or we could, uh, we could choose to follow Molech, who's the god of war, and that requires child sacrifice, so let's get violent. Uh, or we could, the star god of Rephim is the sex goddess, so let's just, like, just ignore all the stuff and just focus on pleasure and escapism. Or the golden calf, by the people, for the people. We can just trust, let's put our trust in ourselves right now. So Egypt's confronted in this time uh, with like, the question, will you be faithful to, your, to Yahweh, to God? They literally have, as the text just said, the tabernacle there with the covenant in it. The presence of God is dwelling there. And it's like they choose to go and look at all these other options. And so they trusted, so they sacrificed uh, to these idols in the hope that that would get them out of the wilderness. They walked away from God. To, to sacrifice is to give up something in the present in the hope for a better return in the future. That's what it means to sacrifice. Child sacrifice to Molech, uh, precious metals and finance to make the calf. All of this is idolatry. The Israelites didn't keep their eyes fixed on Yahweh. They sacrificed a covenantal relationship with God to get what they wanted in the short term. The suffering was too hard, too trust, and too hard, and they were like, "We can't trust you, God, through this. We we're going to look for salvation through another means." And an idol is a good and proper part. So this is what an idol is: is a good and proper part of the created world that is elevated to a place where the created thing displaces the creator and becomes the thing we look to for salvation. Did you get that? I'll say it again. An idol is a good and proper part of the created world that is elevated to a place where the created thing displaces the creator and becomes the thing we look to for salvation. And so 
the thing that I want to gently suggest to us today is we've got to be careful that we don't look to, that we don't take the same track as the Israelites right now. That we've all got our favorite idols, if we're super honest, that we're like, oh, that's the thing. That's going to see me get saved out of it. This is what the nation needs. And if we're willing to make sacrifices to one of these in the assumption that it will lead us to the fullness of life, then again, I think that's revealing something in our hearts. We have to wrestle deeply, deeply with what's happening in our hearts. Uh, The strength of our passion for one of these things, uh, the level to which one of these occupies the attention of my heart and mind, reveal something about where the depths to where I believe the salvation is coming from. Where there is an enemy in my heart of a person who's in another quadrant would indicate that perhaps this is moving beyond its proper place. It's got very quiet. The gift of the desert is an invitation to deeply trust Jesus. To deeply trust Jesus. When you're in pain and under pressure, where will you turn? Where will your salvation come from? And this is why the cars makers are just blowing us away right now. Under huge pressure, going through a wilderness season as a family, and man, have they doubled down on Jesus. And like, in a second I'm going to unpack, like these, fight, these, these have their place. I'm not saying they don't have their place or that we shouldn't engage with this stuff. It's, is it in the proper place? Where does our help come from? I lift up my eyes to the hills. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Where does our salvation come from? So let's make sure we're clear about what we mean by salvation. One of the tricky things in the church uh, over the years is that salvation has simply meant it's what a decision we make that sees us go to heaven when we die. That's why we're in all sorts of pickle. We have to untangle a lot of stuff in this cultural moment. Because that is not the biblical view of salvation. It's nothing less than that, but it's a whole lot more than that. It's so much more bigger and beautiful and impacts our present as much as it gives hope for the future when we die. For example, Psalm 18 says this, I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I've been saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangled around me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave called around me. The snares of death confronted me. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. Then this, he brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. One of the metaphors or ways that you can unpack the Greek and Hebrew word for salvation is the word can literally mean a wide open space. Like the salvation is a place where your soul comes in, uh, where it's rescued from the powers of sin and the powers of death, and it leads you into a wide open place of flourishing, marked by increased love, joy, and peace in your life today. Now, what's been confronting as we've gone through this time is that I'm like, man. I need more of your salvation, God, in my life because it's been easy to lose my hope. It's been very easy to lose my peace and definitely I need more of your love right now. More than ever before, human love is not enough. I must decrease, you must increase. I I need a supernatural love so this can be a countercultural community of love, not another divided, fractured place where people are all pissed off at each other. We need to walk into greater salvation at this time. Jesus himself said this, uh, he said, it's a narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. 
this is the amazing thing is that Jesus is like, everyone is invited to, to, to have the salvation of God. It's a free gift for the world. If you're not saved in inverted commas this morning, we wanna pray with you that you would say yes to Jesus, that Jesus is Lord of your life and you'll just discover the love and grace of your heavenly Father that'll change your whole life. Unbelievable. It's, it's open to everyone. But then the invitation is not just to stop there. The invitation is to take up your cross and follow him. The wide space of freedom means we can choose to walk in our freedom, the narrow path of obedience that Jesus walked in and which we now follow. Right? Like it's wide open for everyone, but then it's like when you choose Jesus, like I want to walk your way. I choose to walk your way. Now the problem is that if you choose to follow the way of Jesus, that Jesus then calls you a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're part of this new creation now where God rules and reigns. Jesus' primary message when he was preaching on the world was about the kingdom of God. And here's the interesting thing is that the kingdom of God that Jesus preaches and invites us to participate in is really disruptive on all of the stuff. And the problem is I don't think we've been feeling the tension of what it means to have Jesus as Lord and to be people of his kingdom for many years. And so this wilderness season is a great gift from God to come back to fidelity to Jesus because the kingdom of God disrupts those ideas that would become ideologies and doesn't let them become idols. The kingdom of God doesn't allow for an unchecked allegiance to anything but Christ. It's the kingdom of God. So for example, health and safety. Uh, Interestingly, all in the Bible, it has... It has both for and it has critique of all of these things. So the Bible's not critiquing them in terms of like, it's for them and it critiques them. So for example, like in uh, health and safety, you've got passages in Deuteronomy that are basically like, if you build a house uh, on the roof, make sure that you've got a fence around the roof so that no one falls off the roof. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 22 verse 8, if you want to check it out. Do I have any of these? No. Um, Deuteronomy 22. When you build a new house, you've seen the next point. Um, so you've got like health and safety stuff here. Walk in wisdom, friends. We're not, it's not like, oh, you do whatever you want. It's like walk in wisdom. But then it's like following Jesus isn't going to keep you that healthy and safe sometimes. Like have you checked out what Paul went through? Flogged like five times, 40 lashes and danger from everything according to 2 Corinthians 11. In Hebrews 11, the heroes of the faith went through all sorts of stuff. Economy and wealth. Uh, There's passages in the Bible like Deuteronomy 8. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Some good stuff there. Jesus then comes along and critiques it. says you can't serve both, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. You've got to pick one which has got primary allegiance. Uh, Legislation. Uh, Romans 13, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, anyone who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Pretty firm passage about coming under, submitting under governmental leadership. But then Jesus comes along and is like, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's and give to God's what is God's. Our primary allegiance is to God, not to government. So you've got these things in tension here. Good theology is holding two truths in tension. Autonomy and freedom, right? Galatians 1, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. 
freedom, baby, yeah. It's like freedom conference when you choose to follow Jesus. Awesome. 1 Peter verse 2. But submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who have been sent to punish those who do wrong, given as first God's will that by doing that. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Oh, but freedom, total freedom. But also I'm kind of slave to God if I choose to follow him. John 15, no greater love has this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. There's no greater love than to give up our autonomy or freedom for the sake of another. You've got to wrestle with all this stuff, but all of this is in the framework of the kingdom of God. And at different points in history, it's been right and proper to camp out or push one of these things as a kingdom agenda. In human history, Christians have given up their lives for each one of these things. The kingdom of God is expressed in these things. The Bible simultaneously champions them while also critiquing them at the same time. It will not let one of them ride off into the sunset as the ideology that will save the world. They have their place, but salvation is not found there. Salvation is found in Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He's my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fierce drought and storm. Stephen's preaching the sermon. Doesn't end well for Simon. <laughs> he got killed at the end of it. Because it turns out when you hit people in a place that confronts their idolatry, it doesn't make you that popular. I'm facing that music today. And I've prayed a lot for the courage to speak this message. The whole time the Israelite people are making idols, they have the tabernacle with them. They have in their presence the means for faithful worship. And they're described as a stiff-necked people. And I believe with Joseph McCauley and many others that the church is at a crossroads. And I, and you can disagree with me on this, and I appreciate that many will. I don't believe the crossroads we are at is about drawing a line in the sand in regards to one of these values at the moment that should be championed above everything else. I think the crossroads the church finds itself in is about who rules and reigns supreme in our lives. Who rules supreme in our lives. And in Christ, we are open to the possibility of all of these things. We don't camp just in one of them. In Christ, you're open to the possibility of any one of these things being the thing we need to lean into at the time. We've got to discern that as a church. We've got to discern, you've got to discern that individually. Businesses have to say, we've all got to work this out. Followers of Jesus, though, it's under the lordship of Jesus Christ. These things can be the fruit of salvation, but they are not the source of salvation. So what does it mean for us, therefore, to go, Jesus, you're on the throne. Like what does it mean in real terms for us in this moment to go, Jesus, you are on the throne. I'm a, my allegiance is to you. God, I look to you. You're where my help comes from. Give me wisdom. What does it look like for God to be on the throne right now? Well, let me give you a few ideas. <laughs> Firstly, for Christ to be Lord in your life right now means that you will prioritize being with him. You'll prioritize being with Jesus. It's one thing to be saved. It's another thing to follow Jesus. And at the moment, again, the wilderness time is exposing a whole lot of people that have got a salvation but don't have a follower of Jesus mentality. You are, a, if you've chosen Jesus, you're a disciple, you're an apprentice, you follow him, he's Lord. 
In the early church, it wasn't Jesus as Savior. It was always Jesus as Lord first. Like you rule and reign. What does it mean to be saved? Say, you are Lord of my life now. And what does that mean when Lord of my life? You will lead me into flourishing, hallelujah. You will lead me into wide open spaces, hallelujah. Your soul will come alive when you choose to follow the way of Jesus. Now, if you choose not to follow him and and you choose still just to say, I want him as my savior, do you go to heaven when you die? Yeah, he's so good, he'll give it to you anyway. But between now and then, I wanna have resurrection life. I'm tired of living on Easter Saturday where my sins have been forgiven and he's died on the cross for me, but I'm living in limbo in terms of not discovering the resurrection life of God because I haven't decided to follow him. Following him is what leads into resurrection life. And so what does it mean to follow him is to sit with him, to be in his presence, to be still and to know that he is God, to be filled with his spirit every day, in this moment, multiple times a day. Because if you're not filled with his spirit, you're gonna be filled with the spirit of this world. That's, there's no like middle ground. You choose which spirit you wanna walk in at the moment. So I sit with him in this wilderness time out of deep necessity to be filled with His Holy Spirit, to be filled with His Holy Spirit. It's a vital work. Let me unpack it even more. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> I'll read it out. Brian Zahn in his most recent book, this nails it. In a time when everything is on fire with fear, hatred, and violence, the temptation is to fear the fear, hate the hate, and react with violence to the violence. It's easy to be seduced into thinking that our fear is warranted, our hate is righteous, and our violence is justified. This is the devil handing out cans of gasolines to the citizens of a city on fire. But as Henry Nouwen points out, the essence of the spiritual life is to live in a fallen world without belonging to it. To be holy is not so much to be good in a moralistic sense, but to be other. And this is a bit later on the same thing. He says, through a spiritual life, a grace-empowered life that transcends the world as it is, we gradually change our residence from the cruel house of fear to the peaceable house of love. It doesn't happen all at once. It's not as simple as walking up an aisle or praying a sinner's prayer. It takes more than just making up your mind to be more loving. It's not easy, but it is possible. To move from the house of fear to the house of love is the purpose of spiritual formation and the goal of contemplative prayer. The reason we seek to be properly formed through spiritual practices is so we can eventually take up permanent residence in the house of love. When everything is on fire, our refuge is the house of love, a house that is impermeable to the flames of fear, hatred, and violence. This doesn't mean we're not affected by the fires raging in our society like everyone else, but it does mean that it's possibly for our inner self to remain untouched by the flames of hell. That's good, eh? That's why our devotional lives are so key right now. Contemplative prayer, like our church is charismatic on Sundays for the most part with a little bit of liturgy and contemplative stuff. And throughout the week, my big pom-pom is like contemplative prayer with a bit of charismatic. You know, to sit in silence like they've done throughout all of history in the presence of God will still you in a distracted, crazy world and bring peace. To sit in the presence of love will fill you with a love that we desperately need right now. So uh, to say Jesus is Lord means that you've got some contemplative stuff. And, and 
have we talked about this in the past? Yeah, maybe once or twice, you know. Do we have a whole home church module? No, we've actually got more than that. We've got two home, three home, four home church modules if you include our prayer and, and answer. We are so, and we're already, I'm already brainstorming with Luke and some of the guys around other uh, structures we can put in our church next year that will help us just make it easy for people to grow in their devotional practices. It's vital right now. Second thing, Christ as Lord means that you are committed to work with the Holy Spirit to becoming more like Him. This flows on from being with Him. The invitation is to maturity and to grow, to be Christian in this moment. And this will be a time in the wilderness, God does His greatest work of growth in us. If we let Him, up to you, you can be stiff-necked, but if you choose to humble yourself and get hungry for Him, He'll do the most radical work of transformation in your heart than you've ever experienced in your life. It's the desert times are the gift that change us. So, for example, what does it look like uh, to walk in 1 Corinthians 13 love? This is what it means. Like, this is what we grow in when we're committed to the way of Jesus. I've talked about this a couple of Sundays ago. Love is patient. Love is kind, does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. To follow the way of Jesus means that I'm like, I need more of that. Lord, help me become more like this. Lord, I need it every morning. Lord, help me. I've been meditating on this big time because I'm like, Lord, there's so much that's not formed in me. The wilderness is exposing it. But I'm journaling this stuff. I'm memorizing this stuff. I'm writing it from God's perspective, from my perspective, from me. I'm rewriting it, Sam Harvey's translation. I'm soaking myself in this and I'm asking every day, Lord, would this be my, uh, would this be manifesting itself in my actions, in my heart, in my behavior, in my online behavior, in the secret parts of my heart? This is what I need now, Lord. I need you to shape this in me. Friends, are you intentional about growing in this? Is this in your imagination around what it looks like to be sanctified? This is what it means to follow. For Jesus as Lord means we grow in this. Is that easy? Oh, no, it's tough. What about this bad boy? Fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such things, there's no law. No one can legislate that. No one can preach that. No, that's a work of the Spirit. I can't make that happen in you. No one can do anything. It's the Spirit's work in you that shapes that. How's that going? How is that looking at the moment? Wow, cool. Uh, Sermon on the Mount, the Kingdom Manifesto. This is the stuff that, again, I think should be filtered through all of our thoughts and behaviors and reactions. What does it look like to live out, to be Sermon of the Mount people, to listen to that and to live that? Like for once, guys, the Western church has had to coast along for decades. All of a sudden, it's like, can we do this? Haven't been tested before. Haven't been tested like this in a long time. What does it look like for the church to, to remain, uh, uh, have a fidelity to Jesus in his way? We've been tested, friends. It's the wilderness. Exposes us. I'm not... Anyway, lastly, to do what Jesus did. Who's glad they came to church this morning? I feel like there's a lot of people just watching popcorn like, wow, this is... I didn't expect the fireworks this morning. It was frigging intense. This is the last sermon of ordinary time, and then we're going to go into Advent, which is probably a relief for everyone. But I have to... The church will be judged... 
history will judge the church. And history will be asking, why did pastors not preach messages like this? And why do congregations not let pastors preach messages like this? Friends, I, I don't want to, I want history to be kind to my leadership and to this church. So only reason, there's no other motivation, trust me. What does it look like to do what Jesus did? Is that we would make what Jesus made a priority our priority. And there's lots of ways this can be expressed, but in particular, I want to speak to God's love for the church right now. In Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus died, yes, for you, but he died for his bride, the church. In Ephesians later, it says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. It is a metaphor for marriage, but the thing that's buzzing Paul out is how much Jesus loves the church. And so in this time, uh, you know, we did our survey. If you haven't filled it in, please, can you do that? Uh, it's going to offline on Wednesday, so I'd love you to fill in the survey. If you don't know what we mean by that, can you talk to us so we can make sure you get it? Um, but at this time, uh, I'm like, I want to challenge us and call us to give ourselves afresh to seeing this place flourish, to give ourselves to the, to the bride of Christ, to love it, to serve it. The problem is that often uh, we've been formed by um, the secular uh, version of what it looks like to be committed. And basically what we've got is a whole lot of commodification of our, uh, we've had a whole lot of commodification of relationship. So basically what I mean by a commodification of a relationship is this. If the price gets too high or the benefits get too low, I'm out. That's a commodification of a relationship. The, if the price gets too high, the benefit's too low, I'm out of this. And so often we treat relationships like this and we can treat churches like this. But actually what we're called to is a covenantal relationship with the bride. A covenantal relationship. Now that doesn't mean that you marry this church Fine, <laughs> right? I'm not saying you until death, you know, until death you've got to be covenantally committed to Bay Vineyard. But when you choose the way of Jesus, you are covenantally committed to the bride, to His church, capital C, and that'll take the form of little C church in lots of different ways, right? We all have. I've been in a bunch of churches. But I'm committed to the capital C church. I'm covenantally committed to it. Now, at the moment, as a pastor, the price is very high and the benefits are very low. <laughs> Seriously, I'm like, man, with the skill set I've got to have and the sacrifice I've got to give, the pay's crap. I know what I could be earning in the marketplace. I know, I mean, seriously, I fantasize about it sometimes. I don't overreach my, my skill set, but I know that I've got some skills that would be pretty helpful in a lot of businesses. And like the and the cost, mate, it's hard out. It's like I'm not enjoying this. I don't like a pandemic that's really disruptive. <laughs> it's really hard to have a non-intrusive, non-dilemma-inducing global pandemic, it turns out. I'm not enjoying this. I'm not having fun. I'd like it to be simple. Of course I would. But I'm covenantally committed to this thing. I'm going to give myself, like husbands are called to give their lives up for their wives. I'm going to give myself to see this thing flourish. I'm going to go, I'm just going to keep on giving. I love you, Lord, and I love you, bride, and I'm not giving up on this thing. 
I'm not giving up on this thing. And look, at the end of the day, if over the next little while, full friggin' honest moment now, if over the next six months or whatever it is, you don't agree with where we land as a church and you choose to leave us, I'm totally aware that's gonna happen, but please go to another church. Commit yourself to a church where you can trust the leadership and you're prepared to come under their authority. Like give yourself to the little C church still. Just find a little C church that lines up with you if this one doesn't kind of, we don't do make the right decisions for you or whatever. Keep giving yourself to the church. The important thing is that a New Testament church has a call for, oh, there's a whole sermon, call from God, has leaders and accountability, has mission, outreach, evangelism. There's a sacrifice in there or giving time and finance to it. There's a discipleship culture. There's worship, the study of the Bible, prayer, and it helps the poor. Because the problem is a lot of people are fantasizing or going into these little barbecue churches where they don't have any of the stuff and they're calling it church. That is not New Testament church. If you, so wherever you go, make sure it lines up with that. Otherwise, you're, not, you're in pseudo church, not biblical New Testament church. Different thing there. Um, but here's the th- so here's the thing. So give yourself to this thing. Give, like, there'll be grief if people leave, but it's like, I'd far rather you're committed to our church than, than cool down completely and join the tragic number of people who are very cynical and disconnected from church. It's his bride, it's his body. And so I'm inviting you today to like, man, I, I'm in this season, Jesus is Lord. I, I'm inviting you, you've got to discern whether you're with us or not. But as I'm, divided, I'm inviting you to give yourself completely to us as a church. Commit yourself, pour yourself into us. The tragic reality is that more than 40% of our regular attenders at Bay Vineyard don't serve on any team whatsoever. Our finances are fine, but it's like, here's my dream. Here's my dream. With the impending traffic light system and all the rest of it, here's the re- if people gave themselves to our church, time, serving, finances, like gave themselves, like I love this thing, I want to see it flourish, we would have zero complications with a traffic light thing that's impending. Zero like we could be like, oh, we lease that building, we'll start multiple services, we could do, we've got team, we've got finance, we've got stuff, we just we can navigate this, stay together, no dramas, and when the season of the traffic like ends, we're in a better place than we were before it started. That's what God does. Romans 8:28, God works for good through all things for those according to his purposes. So I'm I'm in this tension right now as a pastor of both discouragement and despair at what's popping out in my life in this wilderness time, and to be really honest in our church. At the same time, filled with hope and vision that actually what the enemy intends for harm, we can see ha- we can see work for good. That we can see us come together and in a culture of division and brokenness, we can be united in heart. We can be like, yes, Lord, we're together in this and we're going to give ourselves to this and this place is going to flourish and we're going to get the enemy get in and get all cynical and annoyed at the church. It's the bride. And so we're going to love it and give ourselves to it and we're going to come through the strong than we ever have before. Amen? Easy. Like, that's, that's what I'm praying will happen. But it's like, no, but, we, but then we, we have to burn the idols and we say salvation comes from Jesus. My hope is in Jesus and the kingdom of God is advancing and the bride of Christ is called to be this unbelievably radical countercultural community of the kingdom of God that's just like blowing society away by how radically different it feels compared to the spirit of our age. Like that's what it looks like. Ooh, dang, he's preaching now. I, I want to come into land with this. And then we're going to sing Revelation song. 
That's a good song. And we're doing a series on Revelation in Term 2 next year. Revelation was written to a church struggling to work out where to go. And I'm like, how can we serve Bay Vineyard? Right, let's talk about Revelation. I'm so excited. Uh, Romans 14 says this. This is, again, a key passage for us at this time. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. You know, this is the toughest season for me as a pastor, and I'm talking to friends of mine who have been pastors for 50 years, and they're like, this is the toughest season to be a pastor. But here's the thing that's causing me to hold my nerve and for my spine to be strong and for me to preach messages like this. One day I will stand before God, and I'll give an account to Him. Now, there is an unhealthy fear of the Lord that has been abused historically in the church, where people have, have made people do all sorts of horrible things under this condemning fear. But actually, Andre did a cracker communion talk on this a while ago. It's that, it's awe. It's awe. It's like full respect. And, and this is, again, good theology. He is your friend. He's intimate, communion, intimacy, and he's Lord, and he reigns, and he rules, and angels right now are covering their faces and their bodies and just standing before him, crying out to each other because they can't even look at him because of the holiness of God. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory, and the temple now is shaking. That's also our God. And so... I've got to stand before God one day and give an account for how I led through this. But also, more importantly, I've got to give an account for what was in my heart through this. And I'm like, I'm doing the friends with complex thing to discern, but I'm working overtime to say, Lord, how can we be faithful to you in this moment? How can we be faithful to you this moment? I'm ringing New Testament scholars. I'm, on the, I'm talking to an average, I reckon, between 10 or 15 pastors a week just help me, let's discern together. What are you doing? I'm working to discern, and then our decisions are coming out of that discernment. And why am I working so hard? Because one day I've got to stand before him. One day, and, and it's the same for you, friends. One day you're going to stand before him. And in this wilderness moment, this could be the making of our church. This could be the making of your discipleship journey with Jesus. This could be utterly transforming for his glory at this time. That's the, that's the potential. Lord, let it be. Lord, let it be. Lord, let it be. My trust is in Jesus. My hope is in Jesus. My joy is in Jesus. My peace is in Jesus. My faith is in Jesus. My confidence is in Jesus. My strength is in Jesus. My salvation is in Jesus. My identity is in Jesus. My purpose is in Jesus. And my future is in Jesus. It's Jesus. That's where it all comes from. That's where it all comes from. 